series. So I'm titled the series, Seeing God in the Psalms. We're going to be in uh, six different psalms. Obviously, there's 150 uh, psalms, book, uh, different psalms in the, book, in the whole book of psalms. Uh, so we're not going to go through 150, but we're going to do six different psalms. And the point of the series is, is that we would see God in the psalms, see his character, see his nature, see uh, how he, who he reveals himself to be, how he has related to us, uh, what he's done for us, and what he requires of us. And so just a little background in the, the, the book of Psalms. The, the word Psalms comes from a Greek word that means the plucking of strings, the plucking of strings. That's what Psalms means. And so Psalms are a collection of songs that were sung by the people of God in worship to God. And so this is, this is what the, the book of Psalms is. Uh, it's the first hymn book, as I said earlier, uh, of God's people. There's 150 of them. Here, here's a list of uh, the different authors of the different psalms. So David is one of the most popular psalmists in the book of Psalms. He wrote 75 of the 150 psalms. Uh, Asaph the priest wrote 12. Uh, the sons of Korah, who were worship leaders, wrote 10. Solomon wrote two. Uh, Moses wrote one, which we read Psalm 90, right? We sung Psalm 90. Wasn't that beautiful? I really loved that. That was wonderful. Um, Haman, uh, a wise man and a musician, wrote one. Ethan, a Levitical singer, wrote one. And then they have 48 of what are called orphan psalms or songs. And these are psalms that there's no author that has been attributed to writing that psalm. They don't know who the author was. So there's 48 of them. The one we're going to cover today, Psalm 1, is one of the orphan psalms. And so these psalms, 150 of them, uh, were written over about a thousand year span from four 1410 B.C. to 430 B.C. The first psalm that was written was the one we read earlier, Psalm 90. And the last one that was written was Psalm 126. A little background, and this helps us in approaching psalms, the book of Psalms. It's going to help us as we approach the next six weeks. There's different literary types of psalms. Uh, Even though they are songs to be sung, uh, but there's different types. So here are the different types of psalms. You have the royal psalms. And these describe the reign of Christ. These are the royal psalms. You have the lament psalms. Uh, These uh, express the heartache of the psalmist. You have the imprecatory psalms. What does that mean, imprecatory psalms? Well, these are the invoking of God's wrath on God's enemy. Another way to say it, it's the get Lord psalms. How many of you like the get Lord psalms? I mean, I've picked scripture readings some, sometimes in Psalms and I cut short the get them Lord section because it kind of ruins the mood, right? Um, we have Thanksgiving Psalms. These are the individual or national songs of Thanksgiving. You have the, the Psalms of Ascent or, or it's called pilgrimage Psalms. These are songs of praise for the people of God while they traveled to Jerusalem for the feast days. You have the enthronement Psalms. These, are the, these describe the majesty and glory of God. And then you have the wisdom psalms. There's only three of those, and these provide practical guidelines for godly living. And so these are the different types of psalms. Now, now what are the purposes of the psalms? Okay, so what are the purposes of the psalms? Obviously, there were the heart cry of the psalmist about the different situations and things that they walk through in their life. But, but the psalms, just like songs connect to our heart, I think the purpose of the psalms can be connected to our heart. Five different, five different purposes of the Psalms. One would be to ignite the worshiping heart. Just as we, 
as we read Psalm 90 and we, we sang portions of Psalm 90, it's there to ignite the worshiping heart. Secondly, another purpose of the Psalms is to comfort the fearful heart. A third purpose would be to cleanse the sinning heart. Fourthly, to fortify the persecuted heart. And lastly, to instruct the teachable heart. To instruct the teachable heart. So today, we're going to look at Psalm 1, which is a wisdom psalm. So what is the purpose of a wisdom psalm? To instruct what? The teachable heart. So this is a psalm of wisdom. And so let's turn in our Bibles, Psalm chapter 1. And we're going to look at Psalm 1. We're going to look at uh, uh, the, the, the opportunity that we have to be taught by God. And so let's look at Psalm 1, only six verses. And let's do this. Are, are you, is your Bible open? I know the scripture will be on the screen. How about we, we read it together? We very rarely read scripture together. Can, can we do that together? Let's read Psalm 1, 1 through 6. You can put it up there. Okay. You guys ready? One, two, three. (laughs) Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen? It's God's word. I've titled the message this morning, The God Who Instructs Us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity we have to study different books of Psalms from the book of Psalms. And God, I pray that as we look at Psalm 1, uh, this wisdom psalm that is to instruct our hearts, to teach us, to admonish us, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open, that we would be ready to receive, that we would, uh, uh, that we would repent of any area we need to repent of, that we would submit our heart to you, to your wisdom. And Lord, I pray God, that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Psalm 1 sets the stage for the entire book of Psalms. It really sets the stage. It's kind of, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of like a, a dividing line. It kind of sets the stage for all that we will see. And really, the Psalm, Psalm 1, I, I, I think, represents really what you could say, is the dividing line of humanity. You know, there really are only two kinds of people in the world here today right now. There's only two kinds of people, the wicked and the righteous, the righteous and the wicked. There's really no middle ground. You're either righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, or you're not righteous, and so therefore, Scripture says you're wicked. And this is a difficult thing to swallow. This is not an easy reality for us to look at. And Psalm 1 kind of sets the stage for, for the, all of the book of Psalms. But really, at the center of God's Word, the center of the Bible, it, we see that it really draws a dividing line between all of human history. That there's really only two kinds of people. And so this is going to be one reality that we're going to look at. It's, it's, it's a comparison between those who are righteous and those who are not. Those who are godly and those who 
are not, those who are in Christ and those who are not. It's a comparison song. This is, when you go through the book of Proverbs, what, did, what do you see over and over again? You see comparison. Here's what wisdom looks like, and here's what wisdom doesn't look like. And so Psalm 1 falls in that category, but in particular, Psalm 1, again, breaks humanity into two different groups of people, those who are righteous and those who are wicked. So it's very, it's very staggering. It's very, there's also some encouragement, but it's, it's very shocking as we get through it, especially towards the end, the last couple of verses of Psalms 1. It really shows us the staggering reality of of what is actually going on all around us right now, right? But before we get into the wisdom psalm, I think one important lens that we have to see this wisdom psalm through is we have to see it through the lens of the gospel. See, we're gonna look at Psalm 1 and it's gonna tell us this is how a righteous person lives. This is what a righteous person does not do and this is what a righteous person does. This is what a wicked person does and this is the result of the righteous person's life and the result of the wicked, of the wicked person's life. And if we're not careful, we can look at the book of Proverbs or the, this wisdom psalm in Psalm 1 and we can see it as a list of do's and don'ts. And if I do this, then I become righteous. And if I don't do this, then, I'm, then I become wicked. The gospel lens tells us what scripture tells us is that, is that there's only been one perfectly righteous person. So the Psalm 1 is not written about us. Psalm 1 ultimately is written about Christ. Who's the, who's the, the point of the entire Bible? It's Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, everything points to Christ. So the, 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 the only true righteous man, as, we're gonna, as we've read in Psalm 1, the only true perfectly righteous man was Christ. And so the point, I believe, of Psalm 1 is to point us to the reality that those who are in Christ, this is the the way that they will live. Those who have become righteous because of Christ's perfect righteousness, this is the way that they act. So, So wisdom psalms are intended to be a comparison between those who are righteous and those who are not. And the way you become righteous is through placing your faith in Jesus' perfect righteousness, right? And so, said another way, this is what someone, this is what Psalms 1 says, someone who is a believer acts like this and thinks like this. And this is what someone who is not a believer acts like and thinks like. Said yet another way, this is a comparison of those who are in Christ and those who are not. And so this is, this is the, this is the picture, this is the gospel lens This is not to be read and said, well, if I want to be a good person, then I better do this. And if I don't want to be a bad person, then I better not do that. No, this is but a reflection of those who are in Christ and who are righteous. You guys tracking with that? And this is a reflection of those who have rejected Christ. In essence, Psalms 1 reveals who who we already are. And so some of you here today, we go through this psalm and it may be, you may sit through it and it may reveal something in your heart. So as we get through the psalm and we get to the end of the psalm, my prayer is, is that if it reveals something true of who you are not, or maybe who you are, that the Lord would do his work in, in our hearts. So, so let's look at it. And it's, it's the righteous and the wicked. And we're going to see three things, three areas that are a reflection of a righteous person's life. Three areas. And then we're going to end fourthly with, with, the reflection of the wicked person's life and ultimately the destiny of both, the righteous and the wicked. This is what we're going to look at. So kind of three areas here that reflect the righteous person's life. 
right from the text. The righteous, number one, are separated from the world. The righteous are separated from the world. Look back to the text, Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Blessed is the man. So when it says blessed there, when it says blessed, that, that word blessed there means, or blessed, uh, it, it comes from a, from a Hebrew word that, that, talk, that, that has the meaning of being happy. So it could be said, happy is the man, or content is the man, or satisfied is the man, happy is the man. Isn't that what everyone's after? It's to be happy. Even in our, our Declaration of, of Independence, enshrined in the Declaration of our Independence, in the second paragraph, it says that, 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 that uh, we have been given certain inalienable rights uh, which are uh, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of, of happiness. And so it's, it's enshrined in our Declaration of Independence as, as Americans that, that, that we should be able to pursue happiness. It doesn't guarantee that we'll be happy, but it gives us the opportunity to pursue it, right? And this is what people are after. And the text here in Psalms 1 says, happy is the man. Blessed is the man. This blessed man, this righteous man is happy, is content, has not fallen into the idolatry of experience-driven living. Isn't that what you see in our culture? Our culture is driven by experiences. And they're looking for happiness and to be blessed and to be content through the experiences that they have, the temporary experiences that they have. The psalmist is saying at the beginning of the psalm that the blessed man, the truly happy man, does not do certain things. The righteous person is not after experiences to make them happy. The righteous person, they are content and happy because they have found contentment and peace through a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And as a result of that relationship, here's what a righteous person does not do. And it's under the umbrella of this separation from the world. The, the, the righteous are separated from the world. And what does that separation from the world look like? It's these three things here. Firstly, uh, it's, it, the, the, the righteous person does not listen to the counsel of the wicked. Isn't that what the text said there in Psalm 1? Who, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. They do not listen to the counsel of the wicked. This is the, the reality of the righteous person. They don't listen to the counsel of the wicked. You know, there's a, there's a mindset of the world today. You guys, you guys see the mindset of the world today? I mean, you, you just look at the news headlines. Watch the, the current movies that are out. Look at, look at social media and, and, and you see the mindset. There's, a, there's a, a mindset that the world has. And I, I would say it's an antichrist mindset. It's an it's a individualistic mindset. It's an idolatrous mindset. It's a mindset of, of, of experience first and pleasure-centered living. And this is the, the, this is the idolatry of the mindset of our world today. And the text here says that the righteous person who has found contentment in Christ does not listen to the counsel of the wicked. And, and I want you to know that, that that mindset, that counsel is there everywhere for us to consume. And the scripture tells us in Romans 12, verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so the, the call for the righteous person is that because we found contentment in Christ, because we have found joy, true joy in Christ, that, that, that this counsel of the wicked, this counsel of worldly 
people in our society today that we would not be squeezed into the mold of worldly thinking, but that, but that we would stay content in Christ. You know, it's interesting when you look at those who aren't believers in Christ who are following their own way, their own way of life, their own way of happiness, their own way of, of seeking truth. It's, it's, it's interesting whenever they walk in sin and rebellion against God, they, they are eager, they're eager to celebrate with those who are like them. They're eager to pat them on the back and to high five them and to celebrate the sin of those that are like them all around them. And they're also eager to do away with and to reject and to marginalize those who, who speak against them. But, but this celebration of sin, this celebration, if, 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 if the world sees somebody who believes the way that they believe, they want to high-five them and celebrate them. And that's, that's what the Bible says in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They give approval to those who are under the sway of worldly, ungodly counsel. But the righteous doesn't listen to ungodly counsel, right? What's the second thing that the, that the righteous does not do? They do not listen. They do not listen to ungodly counsel. And secondly, they don't stand, does not stand in the way of sinners. This is a progression. It starts with listening, then it moves to standing. We don't stand in the way of sinners. The, the first admonition has to do with how we think, right? That we think differently because we're submitted to a different Lord. We think differently because we're submitted to God's word and what God's word says. And because of the way we think, we, we walk differently. And that's what the text says there. They do not stand in the way of sinners. What, what does Proverbs 23, 7 says? For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. And so it's natural that if the ungodly, the, the unrighteous, the wicked live certain ways of ungodliness and unrighteousness, it's, 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 because, it's because their thinking is going that direction. But for us that are righteous, that have found our righteousness in Christ and our heart has been changed, we don't go that direction. We don't walk that way because we're not listening to the ways and the counsel of the unrighteous. The way we live is directly connected to what we allow to influence our thinking. The way we live is directly connected to, the, to what we allow to influence our thinking. If we, and, and this is just an encouragement for us, for those as, as Christians, if, if we are allowing ungodly ideologies to influence our way of thinking, we will eventually take a stand with those who hate God. It starts with listening. And if we allow ungodly ideologies to influence our thinking, we'll eventually stand in the way of sinners. The way that the sinners go, we'll take a, a stand with them. And then the progression goes a little bit further, goes a little bit further, and, and here's the next step. But this is what righteous people don't do. We don't, we don't listen to the counsel of the ungodly, or we should not, and we, we don't, or nor should we, walk in the way of sinners. And a righteous person, thirdly, does not sit in the seat of the, of the scoffer. The scoffer is someone who mocks God. He mocks God and mocks those who follow God. A scoffer will not listen to God's word. A scoffer has become a God unto themselves, and they become the arbiter or the, the, the decider of right and wrong for themselves. You know, I, I don't go hunting for scoffers. Well, you know, I don't try to go find scoffers, but if you really want to find scoffers, 
If you want to go hunting for scoffers, not hunting like <laughs> to, to kill them, but hunting to see where they're at, uh, go on social media. Social media is where scoffers hang out, right? That's where scoffers hang out on YouTube, on Facebook, on TikTok, on Instagram. Scoffers hang out on social media. How many people, you go on social media and you see them mocking God, mocking the ways of God, mocking biblical morality, mocking the truth of God and his word. That's where scoffers hang out. And this is, this is the pattern. If we submit ourselves to worldly ideologies, if we listen to the counsel of the unrighteous and ungodly, we will find ourselves walking in the way or taking a stand with sinners. And eventually we will sit in the seat of scoffers. I love what Warren Wearsby says about this. It says, if Christians start listening to the counsel or advice of the ungodly, they will soon be standing in their way of life. And finally, we'll sit right down and agree with them. And that's the pattern. But the, the truth of Psalms 1 is that this is not who we are. It, 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 it's describing someone, it's describing a positional reality of who we are, but it's also describing, it's a warning for us as Christians that we would continue walking in that pattern, that we would not allow worldly ideologies to influence our thinking so, to where that we will not ultimately end up sitting right down with those who disagree with God. We can see it easily happen. You've seen it happen in people's lives that you know, family and friends. Can I, if, if, you, if you don't mind, can, can I speak to the young people that are here, or here, the teenagers, the young adults, those that are in college? Listen, the scripture says that bad company corrupts good morals. It's important who you listen to. It's important what you are listening to. It's important that the school that you go to and the classes that you're sitting in the YouTube videos that you're watching, the ideologies that are out there. So some of you that are older, you may not have heard of this YouTube guy, but his name is Mr. Beast. Some of you have never heard of Mr. Beast, but those that are probably 35, 40 or under have probably heard of Mr. Beast. He has probably, I think, one of the largest YouTube channels that's out there. And, and, and he, he uh, said he was a Christian at one point. When he first started his YouTube channel, when he had no followers, he said he wanted to, you can go back, there's a screenshot of his YouTube channel, and it shows and it says that he wanted to make YouTube videos that would glorify God. You fast forward, five to six years later, over 150 million followers, and now Mr. Beast is, is cursing, is endorsing uh, trans uh, trans issues, and endorsing homosexuality, and now he is standing. He is not just standing, not just going the way, but he's sitting in the seat of a scoffer. He's gone that whole pattern of Psalm 1. And so I want to encourage you young people, who are you listening to? What are you watching? You have to be careful. The people that you listen to, you hang out with, your friends, bad company corrupts good morals. Pastor Tim uh, he shared some notes with me that, that, uh, from a, a message he preached from Psalm 1. I, I, I loved how he has, he has laid out these kind of three areas that the, the righteous person will not walk in. He, he framed it like this. They do not listen to the counsel of the ungodly. They don't linger in the way of sinners, and they don't laugh at the judgments of the scornful. Listen, linger, and laugh. They do not listen, they do not linger, and they do not laugh at the judgments of the scornful. So the question for us today, as we think about to think about this first reality that we're seeing, that the righteous are separated from the world. This is what Psalms 1 shows us. The question is this, is where have we allowed worldly thinking to influence the way that we live? 
have we adopted worldly counsel that has led to ungodly living? This is, this is just how people do it nowadays. That can be the, that can be the thing that we, 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 that we think. Right? Well, you know, this is 2023. This is just how people live now. Right? The music we listen to, the movies we watch, our relationships, our sexuality, even the way we dress, even. That's just, that's just the way people dress nowadays. Our political stances, right? How have we allowed worldly ideologies to influence the way that we live? And as Christians, we need to be reminded this is not who we are. The righteous do not walk this way. They do not listen to the world. They do not walk their way. They do not sit in the seat of the scoffer, Right? The righteous are separated from the world. Secondly, the Psalms, this Psalm 1, Psalms 1 tells us the righteous are satisfied by the word. So they're, they're separated from the world. And secondly, the, the righteous are satisfied by the word, by the word. So he does not, he does not, he does not. But what does a righteous person do? Psalm 1 verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So the righteous man, the blessed man, the happy man, the content man, the person who has found contentment and joy in Christ does not take to heart the philosophy of the world. But rather, what does he do? He or she do. Takes delight in God's word. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. What does it mean to, to, to delight? What does that word delight mean there? It, it literally means this. It means a feeling of extreme pleasure or satisfaction. The righteous man or woman, the righteous person does not delight in the ideologies of the world around them, but they delight, they take extreme pleasure or satisfaction in God's law. They take delight in it. So what does it mean to take delight? I, I, I think it means that we take delight, that we take joy in God's word. And, and so the question I thought of as I was going through this is, is can I take delight in, in other things? Well, Absolutely. I take delight in my wife. I take delight in my kids. I take delight in the ministry that God has given me. I take delight in, in even simple things like playing golf and athletics and, and, and watching sports. I take delight in friendships. And those are all good things that we can take delight in. But I think the point of the psalmist, what he's saying here, is that our delight in God and his word is first place. That's the, that's, that's the point. It's not that we don't take delight in other things but we take delight in God and his word, number one. We don't, we don't listen to the world's counsel. We don't walk in their way. We don't sit in the seat of a scoffer, but we take delight in God's word, first place. First place. The psalmist David even says this in Psalms 119. It says that he delighted in God's word more than riches, food, or sleep. Listen to Psalms 119. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Wow. He said, I love your law more than money. Then he says, how sweet are your words, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. He says, secondly, I love your words more than food. And then thirdly, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. I, I want to meditate on your word more than I want sleep. Some of you here today are saying, I don't know about that one. <laughs> I need my sleep. I might could do without food, but not sleep. But do you, do you hear the heart of the psalmist? Oh God, I love, I take delight in your, 
word, more than sleep and food and money and riches. And, and what does the world take delight in? They take delight in sleep and money and riches and food, and, and they put all those things as idols above God. But the righteous person doesn't listen to that counsel. The righteous person has a heart that is set on God and his ways, and they take delight in God's word. They have a hunger for the word of God. You know, one of the primary marks of a genuine believer is a desire for the word of God. You remember when you were first born again? You remember that? When you think back to that time when you first gave your heart to Christ, what did you want to do? You want to know know about the Bible because it was from the Bible that you learned about Christ. It was from the Bible that you learned about his goodness and his mercy, his love, his forgiveness and your sinfulness and, and what he did for you on the cross. It's from his word. And so, so it was through his word, through the preaching of the gospel, you were saved and, and God places a desire in our heart for his word. And so you wanted the word of God. You, you would come on Sunday morning, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights. If they, if they had a Sunday night service, you'd be there. Wednesday night, you'd go to extra Bible studies. You wanted to know the word of God. So... So I would say that indifference towards the word of God is a reflection of a heart that's really not come to know Christ. What's what's indifference? Indifference is this idea, it's kind of like this take it or leave it. You know, know, yeah, it's good, and it really helps me out at certain times of my life, but I'm kind of indifferent towards it, take it or leave it. Sometimes I read the Bible, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I go to church, sometimes I don't. Just this indifference, indifference towards God and his word can be a reflection of a heart that is either cold towards God or has never come to know God. Because just like the psalmist David says, I want your word. A word, the word of God is a reflection of who God is. It is God. And God, his word is a reflection of who he is, right? And so for somebody who doesn't, want God's word, it's a reflection of somebody who doesn't want God. And so, the righteous person, the righteous person does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, does not sit, doesn't walk the way, doesn't listen to the counsel, doesn't walk in the way, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, but they have a delight in God's word. And then next, look what the text says. And on his law, he meditates day and night because he loves the word of God. So now he, he delights in it and he meditates on it. So, so what is meditation? Sometimes meditation can kind of spook people out. What do you mean meditating? Well, well meditating uh, to the soul, meditation is to the soul what digestion is to the body. It means understanding the word and chewing on it and applying it to our lives and making it a part of the inner person. This is what meditation is. So what is, medi- what, what is, what is not meditation? What is not good meditation? Well, there's what I would call Eastern mysticism. And, and there really is even a trend into um, some false places of Christianity, or even some that maybe arguing Christians that I think are being deceived with some Eastern mysticism. I've seen some videos out there of Christians saying that, that, that a part of meditating uh, for a Christian is to go find a quiet place and to, to sit alone and to open your palms up and to empty your mind. I watched a video like that. The guy sat for a minute. See how awkward that was for 10 seconds? And just sat there. It's a Christian preacher. Just sat there. He was trying to give examples of what it means to meditate. 
That's not biblical meditation. Listen, an emptying of the mind, an empty mind, I should say, is an open door. An empty mind is an open door. Biblical meditation is to fill the mind, right? So we don't sit in solitude with our palms up and our fingers like this, waiting for something to come in. No, 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 no. We know what we want in. We want God's word. So we, we, it's, it's Bible intake, and then it's, it's meditating on the Bible. So it's kind of like this. You, you, you take the Bible in during your day, whether it's in the morning or in the evening, or whenever you take the Bible in, you take it in during the day, and you go about your business, and it's like this, this, this under-the-surface muttering of God's word. You're thinking on it. You're meditating on it. You're muttering it. You're rehearsing it. That's biblical meditation. Uh, another way to look at it is, is some people have described it as cows chewing the cud. You ever heard of cows chewing the cud? Uh, when cattle consume grasses or hay, it, it enters the rumen, and the digestion process begins, and when the cow is resting, she will regurgitate semi-digested food and chew on it. So we, we take the Bible, we, we intake it, and it's semi-digested, and then we regurgitate, in that nice, lovely picture, we regurgitate the Word of God, and we, we chew on it. We chew on it. And what, what happens when that cow is chewing on that cud? It's sucking out all the nutrients, and it's reducing the acid. That's, that's what's happening. It's reducing the acid, and it's sucking out all of the other nutrients that it needs. And so that's what happens when we regurgitate the Word of God that we've taken in, and we chew on it. We mutter it. We think about it. We rehearse it. We're sucking out all of those nutrients that are designed for our spiritual life. That's biblical meditation. We delight in His Word. We meditate on His Word. God's call to Joshua was this, only be strong and very courageous. Joshua 1, be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right and to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. What is meditation? It's not the emptying of mind. It's, 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 it's what's in your mouth. You're meditating, you're rehearsing, you're regurgitating and chewing on and sucking life out of the word of God, spiritual life, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So the point is this. You guys tracking with me? The point is this. The blessed man, the righteous man, does not take delight in the thinking of the world. Does not take delight in the thinking of the world. He does not spend time dwelling on ungodly ideologies, but rather his delight is in biblical truth. His delight is in God's word, and he allows it to permeate his or her life, every area of life, every area of life. So what about our lives? Can we think of areas that we've not submitted to the authority of God in his word yet? Maybe in our marriage, our relationships, maybe, maybe some in our relationships, maybe in our sexuality, maybe, maybe in, in the way we're living out sexually, have, have we not submitted our lives to God's word as, even as believers, have we not done that? The media we consume, the people we talk to and hang out with, have we not submitted to God's word in that area? So, so what have we learned so far? We've learned that the blessed person, the righteous person, does not listen, linger, or laugh with those who scoff at God's word. The righteous are, firstly, separated from the world. And secondly, we've learned that the righteous are satisfied with the word. They're, they're not chasing after things that will not satisfy. And lastly, this morning, the righteous are situated by the water. So they're separated from the world, satisfied with the word, and situated by the water. Look back to the text. This is 
what a righteous person does not do, and this is who they are. Psalm 1-3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Amen? Isn't that good? It's like a tree planted by streams of water, yields fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The point the psalmist is making here is that there are things that will be true of the life of the righteous person who does not delight in worldly wisdom, but delights in biblical wisdom. And what will be true of that person? He says it will look like he is a tree. He is like a tree planted by streams of living water. This is what it'll look like. He's giving a word picture that we're all a bunch of trees here today. The idea here is that God's people are his planting. Trees don't plant themselves. You ever seen a tree plant itself? Trees don't plant themselves. We're God's planting. God's people, the point is this, God's people are mighty examples of the work of the gospel. I I love what Isaiah 61.3 says about God's people. The Lord says about his people that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So in Psalms 1 and in Psalm 61, God's people are described as trees in Psalm 61, uh, in Isaiah 61, as mighty oaks, as mighty oaks. We, we don't listen to the counsel of the ungodly. We don't walk in their way. We, we don't sit in their seat of scoffing, but, but we take delight in the word of God and we meditate on it. And as a result, we are like a mighty oak of righteousness. And we are planted by streams of living water. And because those trees are planted by streams of living water, secondly, what happens? He yields fruit and does not wither. We're like mighty oaks that display God's power to save and to change and to make righteous and to heal and to restore. And we will yield fruit and we will not wither. God's people will bear fruit. Amen? This will be the reality of a Christian's life. We will bear fruit. The more we we seek God and his word, the more we meditate on God's word, the more we pursue him in our relationship, the more fruit will be produced. Why? Because we're connected. Our roots go down deep by streams of living water. God's word is like water, purifying water. It it, it purifies us and it gives us nutrients and, and it causes us to produce fruit. Amen? God's people will flourish anywhere that they're planted because because it's like wherever they go, they're planted to streams of living water. Wherever you go, whether you live in Homa or you you live in Homa, Louisiana or Homa, China. You know there's a Homa, China? You guys figured that out on your your GPS? Whether you live in Homa, Louisiana or Homa, China, you you will, will flourish wherever you go. You will produce fruit because you are planted by streams of living water. It's like what Jesus said in John 15. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Amen? So the righteous does not do those things. They do not hang out and listen to those that are unrighteous. They do not sit and, and, and scoff and laugh at the things that are godly, but they, they delight and abide in the word of God, and they abide in his word. They abide in Christ, and it's like they're by streams of living water wherever they are. Even in the middle of a desert, a Christian will bloom and prosper and will produce fruit. 
will produce fruit in every season of life. In trials and difficulties, in good times and in bad times, whatever season of life, Christians will produce fruit because Christians are connected to the vine. They're abiding in Christ. And what's the promise? I just gave you the promise. The promise is, is that he prospers in all he does. He prospers in all this. He's like a tree planted by living waters, will produce fruit. And the third thing is that he prospers in all he does. Now, a little caveat here. This is not a verse to be used, though it is used by the health, wealth, prosperity, false teachers. And they claim that, that this means that, that you will prosper in everything. That just being a Christian means you sign up to be a Christian. You're going to have you're going to have a 401k that never loses money. You're going to always be healthy. You're not going to be sick. You're going to always prosper. But if you live life long enough, you realize that, that you do not always prosper in terms of the way the world would define prospering. But there's a different view of prosperity here. There's a prosperity that goes beyond the surface. And this is what the psalmist is saying, that the believer, the righteous man, because he's disconnected from the worldly ideologies that are all around them, and because they're, they're delighting in God's word, they're intaking God's word, they're meditating on it, they are like a tree planted around streams of water. And wherever that person is, in suffering, in pain, in sickness, in trial, in cancer or disease, in loss, we can sing, blessed be your name. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. Right? That's a believer that's planted by the streams of living water that is prospering in every season. This is the righteous one of Psalms 1. Isn't that beautiful? The righteous are planted by waters of life. It's like what Jesus said, everyone then, Matthew 7, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall. That's prosperity because it had been founded on the rock, said another way because it had been planted by the waters. Right? The winds of life will beat on our house, will beat on our life, but because we're planted by streams of living water, we will prosper in all seasons of life. We will have a joy and a contentment that the world is searching for and looking for, but can't get their hands around because our contentment is found in Christ. Amen? So, before we conclude, what have we learned? The righteous, what, what, what are they? They're separated from the world. They're not listening to the counsel of the ungodly. They're not going the way of the ungodly. They're not sitting in the seat of the scoffer. And they're satisfied by the word. They are they delight in the word. They, they take the word in. They chew on it. They regurgitate it during the day. They, they mutter it during their day. They're, they're receiving nutrients from God's word. And as a result of that, it's, it's a picture of that type of life is a person that's situated by living waters. And they prosper in all that they do. But we have to conclude, my brothers and sisters. It's not, it's not a good conclusion. It's not an easy conclusion. But here's the conclusion. We have to look at the wicked. Last week, I gave you a break, and I, I didn't end with Judas. I ended with Mary. Excuse me, I, I, I started with Judas and ended with Mary, right? Well, we got to end with the wicked here today. Look at Psalm 1-4. What's the outcome of their life? Who are they? Who are they? Psalm 1-4 says it very clear. The wicked are not so. Are not what? All the things we just saw. All the things we just read. 
They are not so. What are they like, though? They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Isn't it interesting, the parallel? What are the, what are the Christians like? They're like oaks of righteousness that flourish wherever they're planted. What does the Bible say the wicked are like? Chaff that the wind blows away. What, well, what's chaff? Chaff is like, look at, like, uh, think of a corn stalk, and you have corn, and you have the husks that go around it. The chaff would be like if that, that stalk, that, that husk would be blown away by the wind. There's nothing to that chaff, to those husks. There's no substance to it. The Bible is saying here, the psalmist is saying, God's word is saying that the righteous are like oaks of righteousness planted and they flourish wherever they are, but the wicked are not so. They're like chaff that have no substance, no depth, but they are blown away. Why? Because they have not connected themselves to the only source of true joy, contentment, and righteousness and peace. That's why. This is the implication of the text. Those who are not in Christ are left with earthly experiences to find fulfillment. That's what the chaff, that's what the unrighteous are left with, the wicked are left with. They just have earthly experiences, but there's nothing in it, nothing to it, no substance, no real meaning. They're like chaff driven by the wind from one experience to the next. When I was studying this, it reminded me of Jeremiah chapter 2, a warning, a rebuke of God's people. Israel had kind of become like the world here, become like chaff. Listen to Jeremiah 2, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see it? That, 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 that's the ungodly, that's the unrighteous. The, 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 the righteous, God's people in Jeremiah's day were, trying, were becoming like the unrighteous. They were, it was like they were digging out wells to find satisfaction through earthly things, but it's like a well that can't hold water. This is the picture of the unrighteous in Psalms 1. They're like chaff, there's no substance, it's an empty well. They're going to empty wells. So here's a way to illustrate this. I want you to track with me here. All of humanity has the common grace of experiencing pleasure. You all experience pleasure, don't you? You have the common, it's a common grace from God. Everybody, a believer can experience pleasure and a non-believer can experience pleasure. I took great pleasure last week in watching the Masters Golf Tournament. You all know that. I told you even on Easter Sunday I was excited about it. I obviously took great pleasure in it. I enjoyed watching it, right? I take great pleasure in spending time with my family and my kids. I take great pleasure in taking that ribeye steak and, and putting salt and pepper on it and, and putting it in a cast iron skillet with butter, real butter and, and garlic cloves and rosemary and, and searing it on one side and tilting the pan and putting that butter on top of the other side and, and basting it and, and, I, and, and cooking it to, to medium. Some of you like medium rare, but medium and you... Uh, I, that's great pleasure. When I take that bite of that meat, isn't that pleasurable? You can, be a, you can be a pagan idolater and an atheist and have the same enjoyment of that steak that I have. But listen, this is the picture of chaff right here. This is a picture of an empty well that has no substance, right? It ends right there for the unrighteous. It terminates, it ends in the meat. 
It ends in the relationship. It ends in the pleasure. It ends at the end of the ball game. It ends at the end of the master's tournament. It's got to be another experience, a a better steak, a a better restaurant, a a better relationship. It, it, It never ends. But for the believer, oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, pleasures culminate in praise to a God who is good. The pleasures end in praise. I praise God for my wonderful wife. I praise God for that wonderful steak. Right? You guys track with that? That's the picture between the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. The unrighteous are like chaff. There's nothing to it, nothing to their lives, nothing to their pleasures. It ends in themselves, and that's as far as it goes. Solomon, Solomon said that, right? Didn't he in Ecclesiastes? What did Solomon say? He said, I tried it all. I tried it all. He even said this, I withheld nothing that my heart desired. And what did he say? In the end, all of it was meaningless and worthless. It was it. It was meaningless and worthless. But for the righteous, for the believer, for the one who is separated from the world and satisfied by the word and situated by the water, For the believer, for that believer, for that righteous person, the pleasures of this life, the common grace of God culminates in praise. It culminates in praise to a God who is good. Now we see, we have seen the difference between who the righteous are and what they won't do. And we've seen who the unrighteous are, what they are like. They're like chaff. Now we have to see their end. This is where it gets difficult. This is hard. We see the end of the wicked and we see the end of the righteous. Look back to the text, Psalm 1, last two verses. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. First thing to take note here, what's the destiny of the righteous? (laughs) It's so beautiful. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows you. He knows your way. We're going we're gonna to teach Psalms 139 here in about three or four weeks. We're going to look at the fact that God knows us. He knows our life. We, are, we know God and we are known by God. He knows our way. It's this picture, this reflection of an intimate relationship. He knows us. We know him and he knows us. He knows our lying down and our rising up. He knows our thoughts from afar off, Psalm 139, right? He knows us. What great joy, what great peace to know that the God of creation knows me. As a believer in Christ, he knows me. He knows my ways and my struggles, my fears, my anxieties. He knows it all, my sin. He knows all of me, and he loves me, and he's committed to me, and he's sanctifying me and making me more like Christ. But what's the end of the wicked? It's a sobering reality, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows the life of the righteous, but the way of the wicked is not known by God. Not that he doesn't know their way. He knows all things, but he's not going to know them in the way that he knows the righteous. The picture here is eternal judgment. They will perish eternally. This is a sobering reality for those who are not in Christ. And again, we began this message stating the obvious reality of this text 
in all of the Bible, which is this. There are only two kinds of people alive today. Those that are righteous and those that are wicked. And I know it's hard because the lady that you go to get coffee with at the same time in your office, it's not a believer who's really nice and who helps you with your work. The Bible says is wicked if she doesn't love Christ. It's hard, not hard. But that's the reality. The, the reality, not liking this clarity, doesn't remove its reality. This is the picture of the Bible. This is the picture of the gospel. This is what we see in Scripture. Two different types of people. What, what, what we like is, again, we like the middle ground, that people are basically good. No, people are not basically good. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, his perfect standard of righteousness. And it divides humanity into two different kinds of people living radically different lives, headed to two different, radically different destinations. And it should cause our heart to mourn. It should cause our heart to grieve. It should cause our heart to be filled with compassion for those that we know that don't know Christ. That we should pray to the end that they would be known, that their way would be known by God. That their way would be known by God. So, so, so this is what we've seen. This is the comparison. This is the contrast. This is the contrast, the, 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 the differentiation between the two different kinds of people, the righteous and the wicked, living radically different lives, headed into two different destinations. But this is the good news, however. We've seen the righteous. We, we've seen the wicked. We've seen a call to the wicked here. But here, here is the good news. And the good news can be found in Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 7. Listen, here's the good news. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. You remember the way that the Lord doesn't know of the wicked, doesn't know his way, let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Amen? Amen. And that is the good news. So I don't know who you are and where you land, and I believe the majority of us in here, we are the trees planted by living waters streams of water, and we are bearing fruit in whatever season we are in. But if you're here today, and you've seen in your life through the reading and the teaching and explaining of Psalms 1, you've seen that you've been listening to the counsel of the ungodly, that you've been going the way of the wicked, and you've been sitting in the seat of the scoffer, and you take no delight in God's word, and you see a reflection of a heart in your life, that would line up more with the wicked than the righteous. Today, Isaiah 55 stands as a declaration to you to forsake your way, to turn to the Lord, to repent of your sin, to believe in Christ, and he will abundantly pardon you. Amen?